Hallelujah. What a great God. Job said this in chapter 19. He said, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. And they are, little did he know. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms shall destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And thank you that we serve the one, the true, the living God, the God who sits on the throne. We, we praise you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us and was buried, yet three days later rose from the dead, and our Savior lives. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the Savior. Thank you for the name of Jesus, the name by which every name, every, every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, family. Please be seated. Delighted to see you today. Always, always such an incredible blessing when God gives us opportunity, which He does until He returns to gather together and praise His beautiful and wonderful and holy name. Family, we are continuing in the book of Acts chapter 13 this morning. So if you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, we're going to be studying verses 13 through 43. Uh, today's message is entitled, New Life in Christ. This, isn't the new life in Christ beautiful? Yeah. And, and as, as Paul the Apostle was sharing with those that we were going to see this in the synagogue, he, he continually pointed them to Jesus. And I'm so grateful that, that Jesus has given me a new life. Uh, a life that's filled with His joy his peace. And yes, we go through difficulties, don't we? But can you imagine trying to navigate this life apart from Christ? I can't. He holds us. He keeps us. He strengthens us. And by His grace, He uses us. Lord, use us. Use us. Use us, Lord, to further Your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. What I'd like to do is just read verses 13 through 43 and then go back and give a summary on it and, and, and just see how God had used the Apostle Paul. So picking up in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13, it says, Now when Paul and his company loosed or left Paphos, they came to Perga, and Pamphylia and John, this is John Mark, departed from them, returning to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, this speaks of Paul and Barnabas, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up. And beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that... He gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, 
And whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him, speaking of Jesus. And though they found no, no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them, which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promises or the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said, On this wise I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he saith also in another Psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised up again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that which these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. That's Paul the Apostle's first recorded sermon. And it's important, I felt it was important that, that we keep it in its context and its wholeness. So we're going to be going back through it now and, and pick it apart and, and see the message that Paul is speaking. Well, here we find them, Paul and Barnabas. They're off and running on their very first missionary journey. They were sent out by God, sent out from the city of Antioch, which was the, the new center of the Christian church. It moved from Jerusalem, as we studied, up to Antioch. They took a boat to Cyprus. They traveled across the, the, the island to the city of Paphos, where, remember, last week we talked about they met up with the governor, a man named Sergius Paulus. And in sharing with him, we know that Paul and Barnabas were also met with opposition. Well, there it's, that's no surprise. When God is using you, when he's using me, well, the enemy is there to try to steal that which God is planting. And this is what happened. This man named Bar-Jesus, uh, he opposed, it says, he was a sorcerer. He opposed Paul and Barnabas and tried to intercept the message that God was delivering into Sergius Paulus's heart. But God is great. God is greater God is greater, and Sergius Paulus became a Christian in spite of this opposition. Well, from there they traveled to Perga in Pamphylia, which is modern-day Turkey. And in those days, it was known as Galatia, and we know that Paul would later write a letter to the church at Galatia. But it doesn't appear, at least at this point in time, that there's any ministry taking place right there. So from Perga, they traveled to Antioch and Pisidia. Now, this is a different Antioch. There's, in fact, in the Bible mentioned, I think it's somewhere around eight or ten different Antiochs. But this one is Antioch and Pisidia, and, it, and not the one that served as headquarters for the church. Well, here we find Paul once again. And upon arrival... In Antioch in Pisidia, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he sat down. And as we shared last week, that became his pattern. When he went to a city, he went to the synagogue where he would, he would pray for an opportunity to preach. Well, the typical order of the Sabbath service is as follows. It started with the reading of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This is where it would start. 
the, the rabbi would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. And when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hands, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. So they stress the, the importance of the word of God. And of course, we know we must stress the importance of the word of God. That's why we study the word of God. So following the reading of the Shema, there would be a time of prayer. And it would be followed then by someone reading the scriptures from the law of Moses. And then another reading from the prophets. It talks about the law and the prophets. Both of those were shared. And then after reading of the, the prophets, there would be an invitation for someone that, that was qualified to stand up and give a teaching or an exhortation from that which they just read, from the law and the prophets. So after this reading took place, the leader of the synagogue, and this is incredible to me, an invitation went out to Paul and Barnabas to give an exhortation to the people. And this is the sermon that he shared. And as I read this, I find it incredibly interesting to think about this, and that is that I'm sure word had gotten to the leader of the synagogue that, that this man named Saul, well, now he's named Paul, he was a Pharisee, a very highly trained Pharisee, a rabbi taught by the foremost of rabbis of the time, Gamaliel. And he was from the great city of Jerusalem. So here he comes. They recognize him. He said, okay, we got to give this guy an opportunity to speak. So this invitation was given to them. And, and we know it was Paul's heart and the purpose of this missionary journey to do what? To, to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ and to preach it. So here's this Pharisee, and he's ready to speak in a synagogue. And as Paul speaks, they certainly got more than they bargained for. It went much further than, the, than, than preaching of the law and the prophets. So Paul stood. He beckoned with his hand. In other words, listen up, everybody. And he said, ye that fear God, give audience. In other words, he said, I want you to listen. I want you to hear what I'm going to share with you. And he began by addressing two groups of people, the men of Israel, which are the Jews, and the other group was those that feared God. And that speaks of the Gentiles who had accepted the God of Israel as their God as given in the books of the Old Testament. Those that fear God, these Gentiles, they aligned themselves with the synagogue and desired that they would order their lives according to what? The law of Moses. That's what they knew. And they purposed in their heart, I'm going to go and I'm going to hear and I'm going to follow the law of Moses. And here we find this, this first recorded message of Paul, certainly I would suggest not his first sermon, but it's the first one that's recorded in the Scriptures. And you know, there's something about the Apostle Paul. He was always faithful to bring the same gospel. But he met his audience right where they were. And he had this incredible ability to understand who he was speaking to and he spoke accordingly. He understood all about Judaism, right? Of course he did. He was a Pharisee. And he understood that the Jews had a far different perspective than the Gentiles and vice versa. And this is important for us to understand because when we share, the gospel must remain the same. That cannot be compromised. That Jesus Christ was born. He, he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again. That cannot change. But the overall message to give, we share the gospel, it can't change, but the overall message, family, it can't be one size fits all. And you've experienced this. Maybe you've tried to share with someone the same thing that you shared with somebody else. This person received it, and this person says, I don't know what you're talking about. Nor do I want to even hear you. So we don't often take the time to gain their perspective. 
And we need to. The person you're, you're speaking with, their perspective on God. You know, who is God? Is there a God? Their perspective on the Bible. What is this book? Do you really believe this is the Word of God? We need to understand where they're coming from. Their view of sin. You know, there's a lot of people that don't understand what sin is. We need to find out what, what's their thinking on, on sin because when we define sin as God defines sin, what happens is we realize that we've offended God. We need to understand their perspective on forgiveness, right? And that there is a God that forgives. Some people don't believe they, they can be forgiven, but my God desires to forgive. I'm so grateful for that. We need to understand their perspective on salvation. You know, there's, there's many people in this world that don't even think about salvation. They don't think there is such a thing. They don't think there is an eternity in heaven with God. They think there is no heaven, there is no hell. Well, if this is all we have, I'm without hope. So we need to gain their perspective and also gain their perspective on Jesus. And you know, Jesus is a name that's known throughout the world. Yet so many don't understand and know the Jesus that you and I know. Some call him, well, he's just a good man. He was a prophet. He is God. We need to understand their perspective on that. Maybe their worldview. Maybe they're impacted by, by evolution, evolutionary lie. But we know the Creator. So we need to understand a little bit about where they are. So as with Paul, we need to endeavor to meet people where they are. He said, I became, I became as they are. You know, he mentioned this in the Scriptures. And we need to understand where they are because they can't be anywhere else than where they are, right? And we need to find out where that is. But it takes some time, and not, not all, we don't always have the time. But I think we need to do by God's Spirit and by His grace to, to do what we can do with the time that God has given us to understand just a little bit better. Take the time to listen. And you know, sometimes, maybe you're not guilty of this as I am, sometimes I just jump in and speak and speak and speak when I'm not listening. And how can I speak what somebody needs to hear if I don't know where they are and I'm not listening to them? We need to have ears to hear what people are speaking so that we can reply in a way that would be, be the Spirit of God speaking to their heart. So Paul was very skilled at this. He was very, very skilled and very sensitive. So as we, as we dialogue with someone, we need to learn something about who we're speaking to. And, and the wonderful thing is, as you take that time, as we take this time, you may learn that and this person might be afraid. There's a lot of people that are afraid in this world these days. They're afraid of the, the condition of the world, where it's headed. Well, we know where it's headed. But we also know where we're headed. People are afraid of life, right? Fearful. This could be the day. This could be the end. This could be the bomb. Whatever it might be. People are afraid of death. They're afraid of life. And you might learn that someone has something missing in their life. Just like you were. Or maybe that you are. Just like I was. There was something missing in my life that I needed to be filled. And honestly... I didn't know where to go. And even after some told me not where to go, but that happened too. <laughs> but where I, I could go to find hope, I didn't want to believe it until God took care of that in my heart. Someone might express confusion about eternity. Some might express that they're just angry or full of hatred and ask questions like, why is there so much hatred in this world? Why is there so much violence? Why is there so much murder? Why are things such a mess? And you know, these, these kind of questions, they come up all the time. However, they do give us great insight into that, that particular person, don't they? By the comments they make, by the questions that they ask. And as a student of the Word of God, once you know these things, you can begin to talk about some of these things from what? From a biblical perspective. And we need to be prepared to do that. You know, the Apostle Peter said this in 1 Peter 3, 15. He said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready 
always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. And he said, and do it with meekness and fear. He's saying, be ready to give a reason for the hope. And you know, as Christians, we should be, we ought to be the most hope-filled people on the planet, shouldn't we? And it should be that hope that we have in Christ Jesus, the hope of glory that other folks see in us. And when there's people running around not understanding what's taking place, full of fear, without hope, they can look at you and say, there's something about her. There's something about him that's really different. And we need to be ready to give that answer. Now when Paul approached the Jews, he approached them with the understanding that they viewed the Old Testament Scriptures as authoritative. This is what they had. This is what they believed. And he goes right to the Word of God to establish the fact that Jesus, he brings Jesus into this as the Messiah. That's where he brings them. And as we've read this sermon, we see it's very similar, if you recall, to the sermon that Stephen preached before being stoned to death by the religious Jews. Remember that Saul held the garments of those that were stoning Stephen. And he listened to Stephen. And I'm sure that the words that Stephen spoke, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, I'm certain that, that Paul didn't forget those. They were emblazoned on his mind. They were attached to his heart. And in just a matter of minutes, as Stephen was sharing, something happened. Something happened in the heart of, of Paul or Saul at the time, completely dismantled and unraveled everything that Saul the Pharisee believed in. It challenged his understanding of the prophets. It challenged his understanding of the law and the purpose of the law. It challenged his belief that living, simply living a moral life in accordance with the Scriptures was good enough to make it to heaven. Did you ever think that? I'm good enough. I used to think that. Now I know that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But there was a time. It's like, God, I'm doing you a favor by paying attention to, to, to what you're saying in the, in the law and, and knowing that, you know, I, I couldn't keep the law. But I know I did, and maybe some of you too had a tendency to just say, well, I got most of them right. I got the majority. But what did James say? If you offended one element of the law, you might as well have offended them all. This one single sin separates us from God. So here comes this, this, this guy, Stephen, who preached this incredibly powerful sermon inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it went right to Saul's heart. And he realized... This, this isn't about keeping the law, as I once thought. It's not about me. It's not about self-righteousness. This is all about Jesus, the Messiah. That's who this book is about. As Jesus spoke to the religious leaders, he said this in John 5, 39, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and, and, they, that are, and they that are they which testify of me. He's speaking of those that study the Word of God. They search the Word of God. They, they memorize and analyze the Scriptures, committing themselves to, to memory. But you know what? He's saying, you never found me. Jesus said the Scriptures, they testify or bear witness of me. And family, when we study the Old Testament, we find that Jesus is the object of it. We find the prophecies pointing to Jesus, the coming Messiah, pointing to his, his coming death, his burial and his resurrection. We find the prophecies that declare that Jesus is on the throne of God, seated forever at the right hand of his Father. We find types of Jesus. We find pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. We find shadows of Jesus. And he said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but you will not come to me that you might have life. And you know, family, eternal life is not based on knowledge of Scriptures, but from knowledge of the Savior. It's the knowledge of the Savior. 
And unfortunately, some people think that knowledge is everything. Education becomes life. And if I get knowledge of what God does, that's sufficient. It's not sufficient. Yes, God does things to bring people to salvation, but things in and of themselves they will not save. Some might say, but I go to church. You know what? I went to church for 38 years, but I never knew Jesus. Some say, well, I've memorized the Scriptures. Well, so did I. But I never knew the author. How could that be? John 5.40, and you will not come to me that you might have life. You see, it implies that a decision must be made, a choice must be made to either come or not to come. I'm so grateful that God extends an invitation, aren't you? Aren't you so thankful that God extended an invitation to you personally? Just looking for an RSVP. Jesus is saying if you read the Law and the Prophets and you don't come away with an understanding that the Scriptures are all about me, then you know nothing about the reasons for the writing of the Old Testament. And that was the fact that impacted Paul in a very incredibly powerful, life-changing way. And by the time that Stephen's sermon was over, it left Paul's religious world in a complete heap. And with this great thinking mind that he had, this great legal mind that God gave him, I'm, certainly that, I'm certain that he recited Stephen's sermon over and over in his mind, looking for a loophole. Looking to find something that was wrong in order to justify himself. But you know what? He could not find anything. He couldn't find anything to refute that which Stephen spoke. And he realized that he gave his entire life to the study of the Word of God. The law, the prophets. And he knew that he had once before missed the whole point. He missed the whole focus. Who is Jesus? Didn't Jesus say this in Matthew 5, 17? He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come to destroy. Not to destroy, but to fulfill. And they read the Law and the Prophets every Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, listen, I didn't come to destroy that. I came to fulfill it. And yes, family, He is the fulfillment of every law in all the prophetic passages. Well, here in Acts 13, Paul stands up with this room full of people that are just like he was, and he preached this message. And as he preached this message, he had this expectation that they would have some impact on those that were listening, the same impact that it had on him. He was standing before them as living evidence of the power of the Word of God. And you know what? So are you. Living evidence of the power of the Word of God. And when you share with someone, when you bring them to the Scriptures, you can expect God to do something with that which you share. You should have that expectation. We need to have that expectation. Will you see the result? Maybe. Maybe not. But we should always enter in with the expectation, God, you are going to do something with this. And here's why I say this. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. God's going to bring prosperity to that word. He promises to do that. How will it manifest itself? I don't know. But God knows. Now notice too, if, if you remember, as we read through this passage in Acts 13, the sermon is chock full of the mention of God. In verses 17 through 22, we looked at the history from Abraham to David. And over and over again, Paul uses the name of God and God's personal pronouns. It's about 40 times I added them up in verses 17 through 42. He spoke over and over about the God that saved him and wants to save them. And how interesting and how refreshing this is, how rich. And you know, family, when I came to know the Lord and I began to go to church, I expected to hear about God. 
I didn't want to hear about me. There was plenty of me. I heard enough about that in my own mouth for many, many years, and I still have too much of me in me. I didn't want to hear about other people. I didn't want to hear stories. I wanted to hear about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because He is Savior, He is Lord, and He is Redeemer. That's who I want to hear, of, hear from and hear of. You know, Paul the Apostle said this he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The object of this whole book is why we come together and we learn of Him. We learn of God's ways. We gather together to praise Him because He is worthy of all of our praise. We come together to worship Him. It's not about any of us. It's about Him. And you should expect that when you come. We should have that expectation. And here in the sermon that Paul shared, the people heard about God sure he gave them a history of God's active presence in their lives he said God chose our fathers speaking of the call of Abraham he talked about their deliverance of God's people from Egypt we saw this in verse 17 in verse 18 how God provided for his people in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness talk about grace I mean this journey should have taken what a week or two 40 long years. Did God give up on them? No. <laughs> Did He give up on you? No. Will He ever give up on you? No. God shall supply all of my need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And yes, He demonstrated His faithfulness to His people 40 years in the wilderness, feeding them, caring for them, giving them water, even though they complained and murmured against God. And Moses, God said, I'm still going to provide for you. And by the way, the sandals that you wear in year 40 are the same ones you wore in year 1. They didn't wear out. Talk about a faithful God. In verse 19, God gave them the promised land. Paul speaks of that. In verse 20, God gave them judges over the course of 450 years when they were unfaithful to God, but God didn't give up. When we studied the book of Judges, remember there was a whole cycle, that circle of sin. They'd, they'd sin against God. God would gain their attention. They would repent. God would show favor. And what did they do? They sinned again. And it's around and around and around for 450 years. But God was faithful not to give up on them. In verse 21, how God gave them a king of their choosing. King Saul, who, when all along it was God that desired to be their king. Did God give up on them? No. Has God ever given up on his people? No. They're his people. And then in verse 22, how God raised up the king of the choice, the greatest king of, of his choice, the greatest king that Israel ever saw, whom God described as a man after God's own heart. Was David perfect? Was he a sinner just like us? Yes, he was. But he loved the Lord. A man of repentance. A man who acknowledged his sin. He said, my sin is ever before me. And God forgave him. And then Paul, laying all of that before the people, spoke to them about the greatest expression of God's grace to the Jewish people and to all mankind, and that is the coming of the Messiah. And he talked about this in Jesus Christ in verses 23 through 39. And you know what, family? No, no sermon can ever be complete without bringing it back to Jesus. It can't be. We're here to learn of him and his ways. We're here to honor him. We're here to hear from him. Psalm 47, 40, verse 7 says, Then said I, I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. And the author of Hebrews picked up on that. In chapter 10, verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And in John 21, verse 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. It's all about Jesus. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that has described to you that they do, they do go to church, that they believe in Jesus, 
And because of those things, they would be saved. And he might say, but I don't understand why I should believe in him any more than anyone else. There's a lot of other religions in this world that seem just as good. And yes, I go to church. And yes, I do my thing. Why isn't everybody entitled to salvation? Well, it's as great a question today as it was back then. And when Paul calls upon the group that's gathered in the synagogue to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, it's by the testimony of three witnesses. He's got a brilliant mind. He knew they knew the Old Testament law. He knew that they were familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, that says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. So the first witness that he brings up is John the Baptist. We find this in verses 24 and 25. The last, he is the last Old Testament prophet. And in John 1, verses 19 through 27, this is what it says. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they to him, who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He said, I'm just a voice. <laughs> and a voice has a message, right? And the voice with the message said this, Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou not be Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet. And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is whom coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latch I am not worthy to unloose. So that's the first witness. Paul brings up John the Baptist. The second one, he points them to the eyewitness resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And many of those were still alive. And verse 31 mentions them. And third, he pointed to the Old Testament prophetic scriptures in verses 27 through 37. In other words, why should someone believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah as opposed to any other religious or any other religious religion or religious figure? Why Jesus? The answer Paul gave is because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the promised Messiah. And the word of God that you embrace speaks of the coming one, and he is here. Notice he continues to bring that point up in the sermon. Verse 23, he said, according to his promise, the promise of God. Verse 27, the voices of the prophets have been fulfilled. And in verse 29, when the religious leaders had fulfilled all that was written of him. And in fact, <clears throat> you got the, the religious leaders of the day condemning Jesus. You have Pilate condemning Jesus, sentencing him to death. He said that was all fulfilled already in the person of Jesus Christ. And in verses 32 and 33, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God is fulfilled and it is written. And notice too that in verse 23, the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And over and over and over again, Paul brings up the Scriptures from the Old Testament of who Jesus is. They spoke of Jesus. Verse 33. He quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Speaks of the resurrection. And in verse 35... Quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. I will not suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. In other words, his body won't be corrupt in the grave. Speaking of the resurrection from the dead. In verse 37, but he, speaking of Jesus, whom God, again, who God raised again, saw no corruption. 
And in verses 27 and 28, Paul speaks of the death of Jesus exactly as the Old Testament prophecies declared. And there are many, many, there's hundreds of prophecies in the Bible that speak of Jesus. One example that you're familiar with, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 5, it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Hallelujah. Praise God. The prophecies concerning Messiah, his birth, his death, his resurrection from the dead are exactly as written in the word of God. And the prophecies in the Bible are intended for us as inarguable evidence of the divine nature of the Bible. Now, who else could have done this? Only God could put this book together in such a glorious, perfect fashion. Where everything from page one all the way to, I don't know how many pages are in your Bible, but I don't know, a couple thousand maybe, all speaks of Jesus. And he wrote it in advance so that we would understand the reliability of the Scriptures. And when we place our faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, we are putting our faith in one that is absolutely perfect, absolutely and perfectly reliable and perfectly faithful to do what he says because he is perfect in all ways. Amen. Now Paul in his sermon, as you might expect, he preaches for a decision for the people to make. And the decision that he is looking for for sure is that they would believe and trust in Jesus for their salvation. To confess sin Turn from it, in other words, repent, and recognize that Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah who came to save, and the one that is able to save. And then, of course, looking for them to commit their lives to Christ. When a person does that, when a person humbles themselves and, and comes before the Lord and confesses sin, acknowledge the need for forgiveness, and receives that forgiveness, that's the greatest miracle that could take place. And it does take place. This is not fantasy. It does take place as the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. And what, what does He give us? He gives us a brand new life. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. And that is the greatest miracle. And it's so important for us to understand this. And the new birth is so far different than waking up one day, spending some time reading this book and purposing to do better and trying harder to live the Christian life in our own strength. It's so much more than that. It's not about us trying harder or trying to do better. That's not what Christianity is. It's living the life in the power of the new birth, which is the power of God's Holy Spirit. And when you become a Christian, it's because God and the person of the Holy Spirit came into your life when you opened up your heart to Him. The RSVP'd to Him. The invitation He sent. And you took God up on His offer of salvation. And when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, comes into your life, He begins to live the life of Christ through you. And He provides to us the will and the power to live that kind of life. And when you see it in your own life, in the lives of others, you understand, hey, this, this has to be God. When you see the work, when you look back on your life before Christ, and you see where you are now, oh, you're not perfect, you never will be perfect, but you know what, you're perfected in Christ. But as you look back in a testimony of your life, you say, this has to be God. And you know that it is God. And when you look at the lives of others, somebody maybe you knew in high school or before that, you said, this person was a real mess. And now they're praising God, praising Jesus. And you say, this has to be God. What a great and wonderful testimony that is. You witness such a change to live the kind of life that's described in this book. 
And it's not just one day just trying, trying Christianity, like taking a car for a test drive. You know, I've seen bumper stickers on car and I, cars, and I hate it. It says, try God. No, no, no. Give your life to God. Surrender your life to God. It's not about trying Him like you're trying a pair of pants, right? No. It's a changed life that originated on the inside. It's a heart change that will never be returned. A change of heart, a new heart that God has given. The prophet Ezekiel talks about that in verse 26 of chapter 36. He said, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a tender heart. I'm going to give you a loving heart, a responsive heart, a responsive heart to me. I'm going to give you the ability with that new heart to walk with your God all the days of your life. And you know, family, when God gives you a new heart and a new spirit, He doesn't reverse the process. He doesn't return your old hard heart and remove His spirit. You're not going to lose your salvation. Do you stumble and fall sometimes? Yes. <laughs> But if you were saved by grace, and it's not of yourselves, how could you surrender your salvation on your own? You can't do it. If you are saved, you are saved. If you are truly saved, you are truly saved. And God isn't going to extract the heart he's given you and put your old one back in. John 10, 28, Jesus said this, and I give them eternal life. I, I give them eternal life. He didn't say you earned it. I give it to you, and they shall never perish. Wasn't it a glorious truth? I've given them eternal life and they will never perish. They'll never be separated from me. That's a promise from God. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I am so thankful that I reside and you reside, aren't you, in, in the palm of God's hand? What a great hand. A hand that spans the entire universe is the hand that holds you. And he says, I got you. <laughs> I'm not going to do this and drop you out. No, I've got you. And I hold you close. Now in this passage, after Paul described so beautifully God's plan of salvation through the prophecies and through the law and this incredible history of God's plan of salvation through the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus, he encourages them to put their faith in Jesus. And he goes on in verses 38 and 39 to describe the result of having put their faith in Jesus. And this is so incredible. Let's read verses 38 and 39. He said, Be it known unto you, therefore... And again, this is after, after he weaves this beautiful account of the law and the prophets, how it all pointed to Jesus. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him, that's Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things, from all sin, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He said in verse 38, you'll receive forgiveness of sins. In verse 39, you shall be justified in the eyes of God in a way that you could no other way be justified by the law and the prophets. The forgiveness of sins that's offered by God, justification offered by God. And if you're able to put yourself in that synagogue and set aside the routine and the familiarity of religion and realize I can have forgiveness of sin, I can be justified in the eyes of God. Hallelujah, this is incredible. I'm declared righteous by God. And I know I'm not righteous, but I have His righteousness. Because I belong to Jesus. And if I belong to Jesus, that's the where this word justification comes in. He looks at you, He looks at me, and He says, He sees... He doesn't see our sin. In fact, quite the contrary. He looks at us like we've never sinned even in the first place. The forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the blood of Christ, so complete, so powerful, so wonderful. And when I think about that in my own life, that I have been forgiven, and I have been justified, that realization should grip my heart like never before. 
on the day that I received Christ, it was like a bolt of lightning hit me, not to kill me, but to help me realize that my life would never be the same, whatever it meant at that time, and I didn't understand it. But when I, when I received forgiveness of sin, God spoke to my heart. He said, isn't that good enough? Like, what else do you need? I've forgiven you. It meant everything to me. And it was unbelievable that I could be forgiven of my sin. And family, listen, I don't want these two, these two verses just slide off the pages and onto the floor as I read them. I want these verses to be exceedingly supernaturally alive in my life so that every time I hear of the forgiveness of my sin and my justification, it's like the very first time. I need that. Because it causes me to think about how gracious God is. How He extended the arms of His Son on the cross to bleed and to die for me that I could be forgiven, that I could be justified. These are incredibly powerful words. And I don't want it to be just words. I want it to be a reality in my life. And I asked the Holy Spirit of God to ignite something afresh in my heart so that I would never take my forgiveness or my justification for granted so that it would be so alive in me I couldn't help but tell others. Lord, please, please do that in me. Do that in everybody here today. God, please do this work that we would recognize how much we've been forgiven, the depth of our forgiveness, that we would recognize and acknowledge that we have been justified and may it just prick our hearts in such an incredibly powerful way that I can't help but say, God, you're incredible. You're incredible. See, God Almighty has offered to me and you and to the entire world, forgiveness of sin. And you know what? He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to do it. We didn't deserve it. And he didn't have to send his only begotten son to be brutally murdered and put to death on a splintered cross. But he did. It's a reflection of his love for us. That Jesus was willing to pay a price that, that I could never, ever pay. And to think that there was a time in my life where I thought I could pay the debt. My goodness, how was I deceived? But now I know. And Paul said, it's not about keeping the law of Moses. It's about following the Savior and being forgiven. Jesus paid the price I could never pay. And you know, in receiving that forgiveness, we have been separated from the judgment of God. Isn't it glorious? We have been separated from the judgment of God, from the judgment that we deserve. Not separated from God, but we're separated from the judgment. And then God said, as I'm separating you from the judgment, I'm going to separate you to myself so that I can use you that you and I could be instruments in God's hands, instruments of grace. And literally, God plucked you and me out of the fire that would have been our home for all of eternity. Plucked us right out. I think of the three Hebrew boys that were sent to the fiery furnace. God plucked them out of there. And they didn't even smell like smoke afterwards. How complete is the work of our Lord? How, how perfect and complete is His forgiveness? And with forgiveness, God did something else too. He removed all of the guilt of my sin. Remember that. Sometimes we feel guilty about it, don't we? God doesn't want you to feel guilty about it. He said, your sin and iniquity I will remember no more. He doesn't want us to feel guilty. He doesn't want us to experience the condemnation of our past. Because he said, behold, all things are made new. Old things have passed away. He doesn't want us to be held by past regrets. Because we have a future and a hope in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to think about 
the shame of our past sin. And all I can say for all of that is to God be the glory. To God be the glory. And I realize no matter how great my sin was in the past or even today, it could never outweigh the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that has provided that forgiveness and justification to me. Amen. It's wonderfully freeing to know that you and I, we have the righteousness of Christ by trusting in Jesus. Forgiven, justified, restored. I'm going to wrap up here. Just a couple more verses I want to just touch on real quickly here. Paul did give them a warning in verses 40 and 41. He said, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, in wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. He's saying, Be, beware, understand that God has done, God has done, God has done the work of salvation in our works. Just don't cut it. This is what he's saying. And he said, beware lest you don't believe the work that God has done. I'm so grateful for warnings in the Bible, aren't you? God always warns. He said, beware that you don't believe the work that God has done in your life. Family, listen. Listen, if you don't believe the work God has done in your life, rethink God's love for you. Assess your life. No, it's not going to be perfect. There's only one perfect, and that's Jesus. But look where he's brought you. He's plucked you out of the fire. He set your feet upon the rock. Is there work to do? Yes, there's work to do in all of us. So don't become discouraged. Just press into him. And then he continued here and he said, and the, and the Jews were, were gone out of the synagogue and the Gentiles, they besought, they begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. We can't wait for more is what they said. They were hungry for the Word of God. They said, give us more. We're going to be here next week, God willing. And they were hungry. And then he continued, now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Family, continue in the grace of God. Don't try to continue in your works. It's His grace that saved you through faith. It's not of yourselves, ourselves. It's a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, continue in the grace of God. And I say, family, continue in the grace of God. You know, we talked an awful lot today about salvation and the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sin. And if there's anyone here that has not yet come to Christ and, and just humbled yourself before him, if you haven't admitted to him that you're a sinner, admit it. You're not going to shock him. You're not going to surprise him. He knows. And even in that knowledge that he has of everything you have done, everything you will do, he still loves you. And when Jesus extended his arms on that cross, he knew what he was buying. He knew, he knew what he did it for and who he did it for, right? Right? And praise God that he's a gracious God. He's a forgiving God. And if you haven't come before him and just humbled yourself and received forgiveness of sin and the new life that he promises, would you do that today? Would you do that today? If you'd like to, then please just pray with me now. And then we'll share the Lord's table. And, and Father, I, I come to you and I realize that salvation is not of me, it's of you. And I'm asking that you would please, please forgive me of my sin. And I recognize and I do realize that the Christ that laid his life down on the cross laid his life down for me. One life for another. Your perfect life for my flawed life. Forgive me, please. And I trust in your poured out blood. The blood that you willingly shed that I could be forgiven. I trust that that blood is sufficient to cleanse me of all of my sin. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.
Thank you. And I invite the Spirit of God, the living Spirit of Christ, to, to come in now, right now, Lord. Please indwell this body. Make me a temple of yours. I recognize that you've, you've bought me and I want to, every part of me to be every part of you, God. So please help me. Help me to let go of the things that held me back. To turn from the things that are harmful and turn everything to you. I'm yours. And you're mine. And I thank you for the new life you've promised and the new life you just gave me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And we're going to share the Lord's table now.